invite, if you would please, today take your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Now, I don't know the reason I was asked to speak this morning other than he wants to rip your face tonight. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know. Uh, I think he just wanted to throw you a curveball, and uh, hopefully it works out well. I only have 13 points today, and so we have to fit that in a uh, 35-minute sermon. I was corrected the other night. Uh, apparently, Sunday night services are not supposed to get out at 8 o'clock, like they have for 28 years. Uh, they are supposed to get out at 7.30, because that's the length of the morning service. And so I will do my best from now on to preach 25-minute sermons, and that'll never happen. Okay, so uh, uh, anyway... Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. I'm excited to have the opportunity to preach to you on this Sunday morning. Uh, Judges chapter 2 today, we'll read about five verses here, but really and truly our text is not at all found here. We are reading the result of our text. What takes place in verses 1 through 5 is a result of the previous chapter. And so we read God's words to the nation of Israel in Judges chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye will uh, not obey my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare unto you came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. I believe this firmly, that the teenagers and youth of today are going to live with your mistakes and failures tomorrow. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin this morning. Father, we pray that you please bless the sermon today. Lord, I ask that you would uh, help me along my way as I uh, have studied and I've prepared and I've done my very best. But Lord, I know at best I am inadequate. Lord, I cannot deliver any special thing today apart from you and your guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life. And Lord, the people that are hearing today cannot receive anything except they receive it from you and from your Holy Spirit. So, Father, may this be a Holy Ghost fire type of service. Lord, may you help us understand the Scriptures. And, Lord, may lives be changed as a result of the reading and the preaching of your Word today. I pray all this in your Son's precious name. Amen. I am genuinely concerned about the decay of our society of our churches and our families. I feel like it's slowly but surely, even in my lifetime, just getting worse and worse and worse. 
Politics are getting worse and worse and worse. Men used to be elected for the voice of the people, and no longer do they care anything about the people's wants or desires, but whoever floats the largest check on their campaign is the one who has the loudest voice. Our society, our government, everything that we stand for as a nation, or used to stand for as a nation, people are trying to rip down the very fabric of what men and women have died for. I'm concerned. I have the privilege and honor of working with teenagers, and some of you, they're your teenagers, and I have that great honor that you've given me and that this church has given me, and I thank you for that. But as a youth director, I'm concerned that our teenagers today will not be able to handle what you're going to hand them. We're making too many mistakes. What's the reason? Leadership. On a study of over a thousand pastors at one conference, they polled a thousand pastors, and I'm going to try giving you the answer why our churches are failing. 756 of the 1,050 pastors who were polled stated that they only studied their Bible when they were going to deliver a sermon or in preparation for their lessons. In other words, 38% of the men of God only read their Bible, uh, read their Bible on a consistent basis. 72% only read it when they're trying to feed the flock. With men like that, how are our churches supposed to grow spiritually? How are they supposed to grow numerically? 808 of the 1,050 men that were polled, all pastors, surveyed, felt like they did not have a good marriage. 77% of the men standing in pulpits this morning say that their marriages are weak. This, this number is shocking. 30% of the men polled, all pastors, said that they had or were having an extramarital affair at one time in their ministry. Why are churches failing? Poor leadership. You find you a man that's on fire for God, I'll show you a, a work and a church that's growing but we have no leadership anymore. Why is America failing? A recent study showed that a mere 17.7% of Americans choose to worship each week at some religious assembly. 17%. If you look at Forbes, their number has consistently hovered at 40, but that makes no sense because for years and years it's been at 40%. An in-depth study will show you that less than 20% of people attend church regularly. Why is America decaying morally? People don't go to church. They don't know the Word of God. And a society that takes the emphasis off this book will decay morally. In the year 2000, out of 3,098 counties... 
2,303 all saw a decrease in church attendance. According to the Forest Institute of Professional Psychology, 50% of marriages end in divorce. 67% of second marriages end in divorce. And 74% of third marriages end in divorce. Man, there's something wrong. Marriage is no longer permanent. It's more like uh, silly putty. Something that just makes you stick for a little bit and you can bell out anytime you want. There's something wrong. Something's happening to cause this. And I just have to think it's leadership. Half of pregnancies among American women are unintended. And about four out of ten of these end in abortion. 58% of those women are in their 20s. 61 have more than one child. 56 are unmarried and not cohabitating. 69% are economically disadvantaged. And this is sad. 73% report a religious affiliation. 73% of the people who do have abortions report that they have some type of religious affiliation. The Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law estimates that there are nearly 9 million Americans that identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. 9 million. You see, I'm at a loss. Because as a man of God, as a preacher, I'm worried about the direction our country is headed. I'm not only worried about the country that our, uh, the, the direction our country's headed, I'm worried about the direction our churches are headed. Amen. Churches no longer are spiritual. They're very much more social. Just more of a fellowship club, if anything. I'm worried. And I present to you this truth today that the problem with America, the problem with churches, the problem in our homes... It's failed leadership. What's going on in our passage today? What's taking place? This is the first time in the nation of Israel's history since literally Jacob and Joseph that Israel does not have a named leader. You see, Moses was the man that brought them out of Egypt, was he not? Moses was the man that God called on the backside of the desert and brought him into Egypt. And he stood in front of Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. And one plague and two plague and yea, ten plagues later, uh, the Lord was able through Moses to deliver the children of Israel in a miraculous way. And although there was bickering and although there was complaining, the children of Israel promptly followed Moses singing praises, saying, man, look at what Moses is doing for us. Moses leads them through the wilderness several, several years because of the lack of faith exhibited by the children of Israel. Moses makes a mistake, and because of it, God says, Moses, I can't allow you to enter into the promised land, but you can look into it. The next man on the totem pole was Joshua. He had followed Moses. I mean, he was a pupil of Moses. If anybody should know how to lead because of seeing a great leader, it was Joshua. 
He spent time with Moses. And even today, Joshua's war strategies are still studied at West Point. Joshua was a man of God, and he was a courageous man. And he was a man that led the children of Israel into battle, into the promised land, defeating uh, all the nations that were there. Joshua, the leader. But see, in chapter 1, we find out that Joshua's just died. Moses is no longer around. And there is no man to lead. Just tribe and tribe and tribe. They're at a crossroad, if you will. They don't have the leadership that they've been so accustomed to. And they've wanted a king, but God wouldn't give them a king. And so they don't know what to do. Look in chapter number 1. We find exactly what's taking place. Verse number 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Judges. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us? against the Canaanites first to fight against them. You see, all this time before, Joshua had been the man to tell who was going to war. All this time before, Moses was the man who would lead them. And they had had a leader, but now they say, Lord, who's it going to be? I believe we're hurting for leadership. And today what I want to do is I want to present you with four truths that every leader And you, as a leader, must do. We must put an emphasis back on leadership in the church. Fathers and husbands, we must put an emphasis on our leadership in the home. You say, well, she ought to respect me. Maybe you ought to earn her respect. There has to be an emphasis on it. So today I want to look quickly at four truths about leadership. First of all, Our leaders must completely comply. Look in verse 4. And Judah went up, and and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. So basically what's taking place is the children of Israel got off on a good foot. And they go to the Lord and they say, Lord, we don't have a leader anymore. Who's going to go first to war? The Lord says, well, I'll I'll send Judah to war. And I think it's unique that uh, it would be Judah because Judah is the line of Christ. And you could almost make the application that a man full of Christ ought to be the one to do things first, ought to be the leader in the front of the pack. If 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 you're not trying to deepen your relationship with Christ, you have no business teaching a second grade Sunday school class. And so Judah says, uh, we'll go up. And Judah makes good strides. They're doing everything right. The Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. In verse 5, now as Israel is accustomed to doing, they veer off. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled. And they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 
three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem. And there he died. You see, in the midst of this strange story, I believe you see an error in Israel's leadership. They said, we don't have a man anymore. Who's going to go up? And the Lord promptly tells them, it's going to be Judah. Judah then asks for Simeon's help. And so Judah and Simeon are going to war, man. They're doing great things. God's winning battles as he promised he would. And then they come to this place with a man by the name of Adonai Bezek. He's king, if you will. And, and there he is. And they defeat the land, but Adonai Bezek, he, he, he runs off. Well, they catch up to him. And even though God had specifically told them what to do with every inhabitant of the land, they failed to comply completely. What should they have done with Adonai Bezek? They should have killed him. For that's what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. You say, I don't see that exemplified in the scripture. Well, if you look in Numbers 33, the Bible says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye are passed over into Jordan, into the land of Canaanites, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. You see, later on, Joshua has five kings that are held up in a, in a cave. They seal the cave. Joshua goes off to war. Joshua returns back from war. And what does Joshua do? He uncovers the cave and slays every single king. It was God's command that they utterly drive out the inhabitants of the land and to destroy all those that were there. But the children of Israel here begin to do what the world does. So what do you mean? I mean, if you look at the story, Adonai Bezek says, Oh, my thumbs have been cut off and my big toe has been cut off. That's exactly what I did to other kings. Well, why would Israel do that? Why would Judah, why would they then do what the Canaanite kings do? Because they failed. They began to no longer look at what God's command was, and they said, you know what, you've been such a wretched king, we'll pay you back the way we think you ought to be paid back. And even though it was God's command to destroy them, they didn't. And Adonai Bezek was taken back, and he was fed every day of his life. He was taken care of in the palace, in the kingdom. So the Bible says, and he died there. You see, they failed to do what God's command was. Thomas Jefferson said, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. In other words, when the world is calling out with so many voices, Do this, Christian. This won't look quite as bad as what it seems. Do this. And the Word of God is calling out to us, This is my command. This is my principle. This is the way the home is supposed to be set up. This is the way the church is supposed to run. This is the way a government and church ought to take place together. This is the way. And we fail to do that. We're leaving the world to take advantage of us. 
And we no longer are under God's control or protection or provision because we've taken matters out of His hands and placed them in ours. You say you want to be a leader? How about you find the book, get in the book, and do what it says? You see, I've never bought a self-help book in my life. I've never gone down to half-price books. I don't frequent the store very much. But I've never gone in there. I've never gone into Walmart's book section or any library and looked over on the shelf and seen a book from Dr. Tony Evans or, or Dr. Spock. And I and it says, how to become a better you or, or making an impact where you are. I've never looked at those books and, and taken them off the shelf and said, man, if I read this, I bet I can lead my home better. Man, if I read this, I really believe I can make a difference. You know why? Because I have a book that tells me everything I need to know. It tells me the man I'm supposed to be. It tells me the things I'm supposed to clean up. It tells me the things I'm supposed to change. It gives me instruction and guidance. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction and righteousness. You see, the Bible is God's holy perfect, infallible word. I don't need a bunch of self-help books because God's told me who I am to be. And though the world may scream at me, do this, be this, look at this, I say God says be this. But we must completely comply because it's when the world just slightly tarnishes our view or just slightly rubs off on us and we begin to act just like them. You want to be a leader? You must completely comply. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. First of all, we must completely comply as leaders. Secondly, our leaders must constantly convey. Look in verse number 11. Now, this is a very unique thing that takes place. There is one man still alive in the nation of Israel who has been alive for an extremely long time. Joshua has passed off the scene. Moses has passed off the scene. But there was another man who was promised entrance into the uh, promised land, and his name was Caleb. Look at verse number 11. And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir was, before was Kirjath Sephir. And Caleb said... He that smiteth Kajath Saphir and taketh it to him will I give Asa my daughter to wife. Now what a strange thing to put into our text today. Why would it matter who marries who? Why would it matter? Israel doesn't have a leader. We're talking about somebody getting married. I believe it's important that you understand if you're going to be a leader... You must constantly convey what you know, what you've learned, what your experiences are to the younger generations. You see, what's going on here, Caleb was not scared to go fight. If you'll recall, Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies that went into the promised land and said, Oh, we can take them, boys. They ain't got nothing. We've gone. We've seen the grapes. We've gone. We've seen the, the streams. Guys, it's better than we even were promised. Let's go and take the land, for God's on our side. Ten people came back with a negative report, and the Bible says 
And we were as grasshoppers in our own sight. That's the problem. They were looking with their sight and not God's sight. And so they said, guys, there's no way. Because of that, God said Joshua and Caleb would have access into the promised land while all that generation of the Israelites would have to die. So we're a generation later. Caleb's an old man. Joshua's just passed off the scene. Caleb, even when he does enter into the promised land, he goes up to Joshua and he says, Hey, I, I want to remind you something. When we were out spying the land, I saw a specific mountain. And even though I'm 85 years old, I feel like I'm just as strong today as I was 40 years ago. He looks at Joshua and he says, Now, I don't want you to forget this. I want that mountain. You know what's on that mountain? Battles he would have to fight. You know what's on that mountain? Wars he would have to win. It wasn't an easy mountain. It wasn't the greenest mountain. It wasn't the mountain with the least friction possible. It was the mountain that he could go and take for God's glory, and he would claim God's promise that he would never leave him nor forsake him. Caleb wasn't scared to fight. I picture Caleb like a, like a John Wayne, like the Duke. Not in the girly singing cowboy movies, not like that. No, no. I got no problem with Gene Autry. Just saying, something about the Duke when he walks in. And there's never been a man who walks closer to like a woman would walk, but look manlier doing it. You say, what do you mean? That's how he walked. I don't know why. The Duke was the man. Then came Clint Eastwood along. You say, man, he ain't got nothing on John Wayne. John Wayne looked better in black and white than Clint Eastwood ever looked in Univision color. You see, I picture Caleb to be a man like the Duke, not backing down. Going with reins in his mouth and rifle in both hands, shooting and blazing, saying, I'm going to fight till I die. That's how I picture him. Now, you don't have to picture him like that. You could think he was small, kind of like David, a ruddy, uh, ruddy countenance. You can picture that, but I think Caleb was a man's type of man. Why doesn't he go fight this war? Why doesn't he go win this battle? It, it ain't that he's scared. It's that he knows when he passes off the scene, Israel's going to be starving for leaders. And he said, whoever goes and fights this battle, I'll give him my own daughter. A man by the name of Othniel steps up and goes and fights that war. You want to know what's unique about that? Othniel becomes the very first judge in Israel's history. In other words, it was Caleb's, it was his encouragement. It was his willingness to say, I see something in you, and I'll give you something. I'll encourage you. I'll help you any way I can so that you can be the leader when I pass off the scene. In order to get to this step, you must completely comply. But once you're living the life God wants you to live, you're to pass it on. Dad, you know who's supposed to teach your son how to treat women? Not him. 
Not me. It's you. Did you know, Father, that you are the representation of the Father, the Heavenly Father, in your home? Who's supposed to help our next generation? And please, don't give up on them. I'm tired of hearing that mess. I'm tired of hearing that noise. Oh, that generation's too far gone. Not if we had some leaders in the generation before. Who's going to lead when you're dead and gone? And what are you doing to make sure that when you are dead and gone, there's somebody to step in your place? uh, Caleb was telling him, guys, when I pass off the scene, I'm going to have to have a leader here to take my spot. Who's it going to be? I'm thankful that my dad, when I was younger, didn't let me hang around with a lot of kids my own age. You say, what do you mean? I had friends my own age, and I spent a lot of time with some of those people. But my dad made, made sure to emphasize to me that when, when I was young, he put me around godly men, not kids. Because kids face the same stuff that I'm facing. But he put me around godly men. I remember one time we had gone down to hunt on a ranch right near the border of Mexico. It was me, my dad, and a couple men from the church. And I was excited about it. I like anything to do with hunting. And and I like spending time with my dad. I mean, we had some Mozart-type drawings with cheese whiz and some crackers, man. Deer stand, you get bored. So you're just... I remember one day I wrote, Dad, I love you. And he's like, gross, that's girly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I had some good times, and so we went down to this ranch and just north of the border. And uh, we spent some time down there, but the hunting was really, really slow. And I like hunting and all, but I don't like sitting and watching trees. So I decided to go with one of the men... His name is Brother Jerry Cook. He's here today, right back there in the back. I decided to take the evening off, and I went with Brother Cook fishing. And because the hunting was terrible, I figured we might as well try our hand at something else. So while I was out there fishing, I caught a fish. And I guarantee you, Brother Jerry doesn't remember any of the things that I'm about to tell you. And I'm not saying that because he's forgetful. I'm saying that because it did not make an impact to him like it made on me. That day I caught a fish. And he said, well, Andrew, do you want to eat that fish? I said, oh, yes, sir. I, I caught it. I, I want to eat it. And he took that fish and he began to dispatch the fish ethically. And I'm trying to say that as gingerly as I can. But it's more cruel to throw a fish under a tree and let the fire ants get on him than it is to go ahead and end it. And so I had never seen this take place. And so I'm watching Brother Jerry. And as a boy, I mean, I'm just a boy. I'm watching Brother Jerry do what he, do what he does. And, and he took a knife and he then did it gingerly. <laughs> I'm trying to be as ginger as I can. He's a very gentle and loving man. I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. When he struck that fish, he made a noise. I'm not trying to be funny here. I mean, 
To me, I perceived it as laughing. And bear with me. What I heard was, <laughs> what it ended up being was he was coughing. And I looked at him and I said, why are you laughing? Because that's, that's not something you laugh about. He looked at me and he said, Andrew, you don't laugh about this. He said, this fish is dying so that you can feed, so that you can eat it. You don't laugh about that. You know what he did? That day he taught me a lesson to respect what I take as an outdoorsman. And maybe you don't understand that. And I guarantee you, Brother Jerry doesn't even remember it. But something that he said in just a small, short period of time has impacted me into this day. You know the reason I will hit a ditch to avoid taking things out with my truck? Well, first of all, I don't want to clean my truck. <laughs> but second of all, because of what Brother Jerry Cook taught me, I value the life of the things that I take. I don't waste them. They would be better off flying, swimming, or running away than me to be a wasteful sportsman. You know the reason my dad had me around men like Brother Jerry? So that I could learn lessons like that. You know why he had me around a man like Brother Jerry? Because he's been a man of faith ever since the day I've known him. Who are you impacting? Who is it that you're making a difference for? Because when you're long gone, your memory remains. Make sure that what stays is pleasant and edifying. To be a leader, we must completely comply. We must constantly convey. And men and women, if you're going to be a leader, you must conduct yourself courageously. In verse 19, the Bible says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. Now, it's hard for us to understand why this would be such a big deal. But literally, technologically, this nation was more advanced than the children of Israel at this time. It'd be very similar to me trying to outshoot you with a bow and arrow from 150 yards and you having a Ruger 270 pointed at my chest. You just, you got me beat. You ever heard the saying, don't take a, a, a knife to a gunfight? That's very similar to here. Israel is under uh, weaponized. They don't have the technology. And so they're scared. They don't know what's going to take place. They can't drive out the inhabitants as easily as they've done before. But there's a verse that I want you to turn to in Deuteronomy chapter 20. You see, while this may have caught the children of Israel by surprise, it didn't catch God by surprise. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1 says this, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. You mean to tell me that all the way back in Deuteronomy, God already knew that these people might encounter some iron-wheeled chariots? 
You mean to tell me that this didn't take God by surprise, that when they showed up, they had better weapons than the nation of Israel? It didn't. God knew all along, and He was warning them, Hey guys, don't be scared because you've got something they don't got. And that's me. The, the words that Moses left Joshua as he was going to depart, and Joshua was then going to step up and be the leader of the nation of Israel. He says, Be strong and of a good courage, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. You see, our God doesn't operate on the unmarvelous or unmiraculous. If God has a choice, and He does, He'll wait till the situation gets so dire, it's out of your hands, and He's the only one that can fix the problem. Children of Israel got to the land that they were supposed to take. They saw ironwood chariots, and these men cowered down, and God wanted a man to stand up like Caleb and like Joshua and like Moses and say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Courageous men. You know what another word for courageous is? Full of faith in the Lord God Almighty. For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You know, I, I'm not so impressed with people that talk about their past in bar fights and brawls. And I'm impressed with a man of God that prays for his family. A man of God who loves his family like the Father loves us. That's impressive. And if our society's ever going to get back on their tracks, it's not going to be from men who can stand in front of locomotive engines. It's going to be from men who are full of faith, praying for this nation, and exemplifying what God wants every man of God to be. We're hurting for leaders, men. And God's calling you to be courageous. Finally, we must hurry. Our leaders must be cognizant of their course. Now, go back to Judges chapter 1. I've already showed you that as Judah was taking the land, they already made an error with Adonai Bezek. They continue to take lands. We've now seen that they couldn't overtake these with iron-wheeled chariots. So we've seen several times when God told them what to do, and yet they were unable to do it or they chose not to do it. So they didn't fully drive out the inhabitants of the land. I want you to look at verse 21. Because of what Judah did, a pattern of events take place that now... Every single nation is doing. Verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. Verse number 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Teanach and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, uh, nor the inhabitants uh, of Bliam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo, or her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Verse 29, 
Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. Uh, verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Katron. Uh, verse 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Echo, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Aalab or Agzib. And you understand what's going on. Verse 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. What's happening? What was God's command? Utterly drive out the inhabitants. Judah was their leader. Judah was the one that was chosen to go and do what God's will was. They failed. Now what takes place is every nation after them follows in their footsteps. And they do the exact same thing that Judah did. You know why the world looks at our teenagers and says there's no hope for tomorrow? Because they look at you. They're only following in your footsteps. They're only going to do what you teach them to do. They're following you. And leaders, whether you like it or not, you are a leader. There's somebody looking at you. There's somebody... Uh, seeing what you do, whether he's just a two-year-old little boy or whether he's an employee at work, there's somebody watching you. And as a leader, we must be cognizant of the course we take and the things that we leave behind. You see, what God's looking for is some men that will be courageous, some women who will love the Lord with all their heart and love their children and pray for their children. That's what God needs. That's what this nation needs. But I'm afraid we're just going to have a verse 21, 23, 24, 25, 26 situation where it's one fell generation after another. What are you leaving behind? What is it that you'll be remembered for? Benjamin Franklin said, If you would not be forgotten... As soon as you were dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth the writing. In other words, leave a legacy. You know, when you pass off the scene, I hope your children are proud to carry your name. hope they're able to talk about you as they stand over your casket in a positive light. I hope the pastor's not the only one that day that has to lie. What's the course you're taking? What are you leaving for the generation to come after you? There's a man by the name of General George Armstrong Custer. Many of you have heard of him. Many of you know him, who he is, maybe what he's done. What you may not know about the man is he graduated last in his class at West Point. That's pretty terrible. I graduated in the top 50 percentile of my class of six at Joshua Christian Academy, so... At least I have Mr. Custer beat. Finished last. Several times throughout uh, Mr. Custer's uh, service to his country, he did very questionable things. For instance, he would just take leaves of absences to go visit a particular woman. Uh, And one time he was suspended for an entire year because of that. He had somewhat of a questionable track record to say the best. To say it best, but 
as General Custer succeeded brilliantly in the Civil War, he was the most bold man in his battalion, and so because of that, he was promoted through the ranks, and before you knew it, he was leading the 7th uh, Cavalry. Now, General Custer is not the most famous for what he did in the Civil War, is he? He's not most famous for his graduation at West Point. What's he most famous for? The Battle at Little Bighorn. Custer's last stand, as most know it, where even though his men had told him they were outnumbered probably by 2,500 men, even though his direct orders were to not pursue and not enter into battle, but wait for uh, backup, he divided his men of about 650 into three different groups. One man to take the valley, one man to take the left side of the ridge, and his group to take the right side of the high ground. Now, we know the rest of the story, don't we? He gets down there, and he's surrounded, blockaded in, and he was outnumbered, and it was a slaughter as the Sioux Indians slaughter 250 men because of what his poor leadership left. You see, we don't remember Custer for what he did in the Civil War. We remember him for what he did at the Battle of Little Bighorn. We, we don't remember him for his successes. We remember him for his biggest failure. And it was a failure in leadership that cost 250 men their life. I say that to say this, and we're done. You will not be remembered for your successes you will be remembered for the failures you make them live with. We need leaders. Our nation's starving for them. Uh, Capitol Hill doesn't have any of them. I, I'm sorry to say it, Austin doesn't have any of them. When I say leader, I'm not talking about somebody who can lead men. I'm talking about somebody who's a man of God that points men back to God. Are you that man? Because our nation, our churches, and our homes are decaying at a rapid pace. And the only thing that's going to take care of it or fix it is men and women who will decide to become leaders for the generations to follow.